it's time to come together. This conversation is at the next step. Culture is set by leadership and who you choose to put into positions of leadership. It's not as though the cancer is out of the body. It's not. Leadership of an organization at the very top is really important. They are the culture carriers. The collective women's voices have had the courage to rise up and say, enough. Something about shining a spotlight on a problem that helps break the taboo. It helps lift the stigma. We have to collaborate. It takes everybody. Accountability is something that we cannot afford to lose. We cannot let that go. We need to redefine respect. It isn't enough to simply talk about equality. One must believe in it. The day I start fighting for equality and for people that look like you and me will be the day I'm in my grave. I'm Diana Pierce Burgess, and this is Press Forward, a podcast where we have conversations about workplace equality and solutions in our post-Me Too world. I'm a former journalist who, along with 12 courageous women, created Press Forward to change culture in American newsrooms and beyond. We look at new approaches and outside-the-box ideas, or reflect on past mistakes to find lessons learned so that everyone can do their best work, because this is not just a gender issue, it's one of human decency. Today, we are taking our podcast in-house to talk about training in the workplace, an issue we have been digging into and working on for the past two years. I'm joined by Press Forward's senior training strategist, Gloria Riviera, who is also an award-winning correspondent with ABC News Nightline, and Press Forward's chief visionary officer, Carolyn McGordy-Seppel. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks, Diana. I wanted to talk today to both you guys about our training program and about training in general, but I, w- I want to start with how we got to this point. Why did we decide that training was going to be a crucial and integral part of Press Forward's initiatives, um, programs. And um, I'll start with myself because I know that we have, we look at things from a macro level and a micro level. And uh, for me on a micro level, I didn't have the language or the uh, skills or the knowledge that what had happened to me was even harassment, let alone uh, knowing that there was something I could or should do about it or report or how to handle. There, there was so much that I think a lot of people for many years um, didn't understand um, from a personal level. And I would just love to hear from both of you, and Gloria, I'll start with you, why we chose this and, and sort of what was the crux of uh, addressing training in specific. I think for me, when I was harassed, I knew it felt inappropriate, but that's where it stopped. I didn't know what to do about it. I didn't know what to even really call it. I just knew that it felt uncomfortable, invasive, and I go back to that word, deeply inappropriate. To put all that in a professional context, that those feelings were being elicited at my place of work, left me you know, so confused that I felt helpless. I truly didn't think for a moment that speaking up would lead to anything. Anything good. Anything at all. Anything Anything good. I mean, maybe I would have been listened to, but I was also in a place where I was reporting to one man. I was not alone because I spoke to my other female colleagues. We all shared similar experiences. 
And I think that's really important that at that time, and we're talking about 2003 and four, I almost immediately did not feel alone. And I think that that's a real gift that I'm only realizing the fruits of these many years later because I felt that at least other people experienced it too. And we all essentially collectively agreed not to take it to HR. But I'll tell you, I wouldn't have been able to say who ran HR at that point. I mean, I should know. And, you know, now I know. But at that time, I did not know who ran HR. And I certainly didn't know what my legal rights were or had any assurance that action would be taken. At Press Forward, we chose training as a key thing that we wanted to tackle um, because in the passion of the Me Too movement, as you know, we came together, many of us who'd been victims of, of powerful men in the news business, and it really took the reporting of journalists for us to be able to characterize what had happened to us, to even process that we'd been harassed because, to your point, Diana and Gloria, we didn't have the language to say this is what harassment looks like. So when somebody um, invites you to their office for an informational interview and tries to kiss you, that's quid pro quo. Or if somebody shoves their tongue down your throat when you're on the campaign trail in an isolated place with them, that's harassment, if not assault. We didn't have that language. We didn't know what our rights were. Um, I am such a nerd. I kept my old ABC News policy binders and I still have it on my shelf. And there was nothing in there about harassment. I don't remember receiving training. And furthermore, we started digging and we realized that training in general is pretty broken. And so we spent six months um, analyzing why that training is broken and what we could do to make it more effective for journalism. And we were very fortunate in uh, January of 2018 to meet someone from the Pointer Institute who attended the PowerShift Summit and wanted to partner with us because we said we were interested in exploring this problem. We formalized the partnership, and then we started exploring what the curriculum should contain. Yeah. And, um, you know, what we found was that it really has to be focused on the industry. It has to be tailored to a particular industry and the scenarios that arise from that industry. We also found, according to research, that it needed to be rooted in the environment that breeds harassment, which is incivility and disrespect. And that harassment happens in environments where there's discrimination, where there's inequality, where there's screaming and yelling. And for many in the news business, we can all attest that it's a challenging work environment. And so our, our training had to address not just what does the behavior of harassment look like, but what do newsroom leaders and managers need to do to create safety and trust so that people feel comfortable comfortable coming forward to report. That was the other thing that we reflected on with our experiences was that, you know, for many in the news business just starting out, they were targeted. They were completely vulnerable. Not only did they not know how to characterize the behavior, they didn't know who their HR contact was. They didn't feel comfortable approaching a manager. If you're sitting at the rim of world news, for example, you know, the only people you're interacting with are luminaries. And so who do you go to when you have this horrific experience? And so there's all these techniques that we employ in the, in the second module of the training that talks about how to create safety and trust. So, so Carolyn, you've, you've, you've tackled a lot there, and I want to I take us back a minute because I, I want to go this, through this very carefully, step by step. Um, I mean, one of the things that you said that I remember from being in the newsroom, um, uh, you know, back in the late 90s and, and the early noughts was um, 
this idea that any training that you had was usually done by a corporate structure, usually done by um, a legal office, um, you know, a law office who had put together some sort of generic training and was never taken seriously, it, you know, and I would probably include myself in that in that list. Um, you know, I think we all sort of rolled our eyes a little bit and, and said, oh, this is ridiculous. Why are we doing this? And um, so I think there there is something to what you've just said. And, you know, I want to take this, break it apart um, on on how you decided to attack this. So that was one issue, which was this is not, um, it needs to be industry specific. You need to put scenarios that people can relate to in order for them to be empathetic to those scenarios. Absolutely. I mean, let me just like address that basic point. I think there was a moment early on when we all said to each other, current training is a joke. I mean, you said, I think we all felt, I mean, I would say we all felt. I would get these emails that were vaguely threatening saying, you know, you must get through this training, which consisted of sitting in front of your computer and clicking the box. And you tried to do that as fast as you could to get it done with. You didn't think about it. You didn't think about the scenarios you had been in that were relevant to sexual harassment training at all. So we all agreed, I think that's somewhere we need to focus. Carolyn? That's exactly right. We also recognize that, um, you know, I mean, we, there's been a bunch of studies done on why sexual harassment training isn't effective. And the other thing that they found was that you know, training, sexual harassment law was passed in the 1960s and 70s and really enforced in the 1980s. And they were really threatening. And the scenarios that were played out were really victim oriented. A lot of the men in the room didn't take it seriously. And trainers tended to be um, women. And we found that the messenger really matters. So one of the things that we designed is that we need to have both men and women teaching these things so that it's seen as not a woman's issue, that this is actually a workplace issue. Um, and then we also recognized when we started doing the research on harassment that these issues were about power. And the reason why women have been so disproportionately impacted is because they haven't been in positions of power in the news industry. And that when you get power, the science shows that it changes you, you lose empathy, you lose um, the ability to take on somebody else's perspective, which is really bad for journalism, if not the workplace. And so we wanted to create some skills and behavioral scenarios um, so that people could understand how you should use power effectively and what happens if you get it, uh, which is really important for the journalists in the room to understand yeah. because they hold the powerful to account. The goal of the training really was, was had a few points. It needed to provide the tools to stop and prevent this behavior. Um, it needed to help participants recognize the unacceptable behavior we needed to empower bystanders, especially to take action and to create a work culture that was civil and respectful with the ultimate outcome of better journalism. How are we going to make sure that this gets um, the priority that it needs? Because as you and I both know, and Carolyn, that when, you know, when we were in the newsrooms and we had to go do the training and get back to our desk because we were under deadline and pressure and whatever, um, you know, how are you, as Press Forward goes into the newsroom, and I know we're piloting this training program right now, um, how do we make sure that the um, the due time and energy and focus is allowed to to do the training and get what you need out of it? 
Well, I think it's about comparison. And you look at where we were when we were in the business and it wasn't, it didn't feel like a priority to me. It felt like something that I had to get out of the way so I could do my job. So I think that's why we focus on managers and executives to let them know this is something you need to spend time on, whether that means, I mean, right now it's still sort of, that would never happen. I was about to say, letting a part of your staff take a day for this training. You know, in terms of what it will save you, first of all, bottom line, as a company, as a profit-driven company, um, but more importantly, as a group of human beings working towards a common goal, you want your employees to have a very clear understanding of what is appropriate and what is not in the newsroom. Mm -hmm. It's worth the time. So Carolyn, break down for us the, the, the modules themselves. So we have uh, training that is helping the entry level uh, employees who are coming in uh, and giving them uh, tools and language that they can understand what harassment and abuse of power is. And we also have manager training to help train the managers and we have training that helps the star the people who are in the, the rainmakers and the star power understand what abuse of power is. Um, but but break it down for us and, and explain to us each one of the, our modules. The the training breaks down into two modules. The first module is for all staff and it tackles awareness of the law so that people walk away with an understanding of how this behavior manifests itself specifically in the newsroom, what they can do about it and also how it, it plays out in real life scenarios as a journalist. Um, and it also talks about power and how that's used, because at the end of the day, this is all about power. And those who might be um, directly affected, which might be women, but it can also be men. And it tends to be those who are more vulnerable in the newsroom. And so how do we create an environment in which people feel safe coming forward to report and we also equip bystanders with some tools. That was a key part of our research that we found as well, that for training to be effective, there needed to be more um, understanding of what bystanders could do to help. The second module goes into what leaders and managers can do to create an environment of safety and trust so that people feel comfortable coming forward to report. After Me Too happened in 2017, some states began to strengthen their laws and mandating uh, sexual harassment training and had some specific components focused on leaders and managers so that they would be held more personally responsible and liable. And so we felt it was really important to set aside a module that talked about the culture that they create and, um, and how to create civility and respect because the EEOC found that harassment breeds an environment when there's lack of it. We offer the participants of the training to share some high-level feedback, which we then bring to the leaders and managers about their culture and environment, and help them kind of think through how to improve things. And then also that they communicate their policies and, and help staff understand that they're committed to uh, the dignity and respect of all their employees. It, it's so, to, to me, it's so important that you have addressed this in the way that you guys have. Um, because if you look at what, um, some people call these gaps in our knowledge and in our learning uh, and our understanding about this issue. The, the, one of the gaps that has been pointed out over and over again is um, this idea that people didn't come forward, that they didn't know that they had the power or the wherewithal or, or who to go forward to or how to even address it or understand the language or the law. 
which is what you're doing with the entry level module, that first module that's for all staff, uh, which is education, really understanding and educating. And then that second module, which I'm actually a little more interested in only because I was a manager and did, never had any training. Thank goodness I never had any issues, but I mean, I wouldn't have known what to do as a manager had somebody come forward to me on my team and said, this is happening. And I think that is crucial. And we've seen that in all the stories um, that in, in not just in our industry, in many industries where the managers didn't know how to handle this issue because they'd never been trained on it and they didn't have again, the education of what what the role HR plays or doesn't play, what role they play, and how to turn things around. So I think that's um, exactly, obviously, as you guys should be doing, but, um, you know, it's, it really does go to the heart of the, of the gaps that we need to address. For sure. There's an education gap both on the everyday employee, the new intern, or the seasoned correspondent, and also managers. Managers need to know what to do with the information. I mean, I have this ideal in my head of walking into a manager's office and reporting an incident that left me feeling uncomfortable. And that manager saying to me, thank you for telling me. I respect what you had to say and something will be done. And then knowing what that would be, you know, that to me, I can't even put into words what that would be like, because I really can't envision it unless people are educated with the tools that they need to then act on their information, right? Like you want to know that there is a process that will take place. And you wanna have faith in that process. I mean, I have to say in my own experience, after you know more than 20 years in national news, I felt a sense that the women whom I would call mentors um, said, you know, you could have told me, but I don't have a sense that they would have known what to do with the information. Mm-hmm. And I think about um, dear, amazing Cokie Roberts, in her interview live on the air with a politician talking about sexual harassment and that politician saying, you know, really, what is it? And her breaking in to say, most women know it when they see it. Mm -hmm. So this idea that women haven't been aware, um, we haven't had the language to express what we're seeing. Now we do. And that's crazy to me for somebody who's been outside, who's been both a journalist and outside the industry, because after you leave journalism and you go into corporate America, Um, and I was in consulting and I served nonprofit government and corporate clients. Um, I mean, the, we're trained to say if somebody treats you differently because of your gender, or if you experience any type of harassment, it's not up to you to be the judge and jury of somebody who's come to you to talk about it. You have to report it. Mm -hmm. Um, and if they had the courage to come to talk to you about it, even if they say, oh no, I, I just needed to talk to somebody, I'm just processing it. You still have to report it um, because it's the right thing to do. It's the legal thing to do. And we all have an obligation to each other. The other thing that came through through this exercise too is the role of the bystander. Everyone's reported about the whisper networks of the other women and the shitty men list that came out about bad men in media. Um, you know, there are rumors that surrounded a lot of these individuals for a very long time and nobody reported anything. It might be because they didn't have the training or the language to describe it, but there's really no excuse anymore for men who make women uncomfortable in the office. If you begin to hear rumors or if you see a colleague come and tell you that something's happened to them, you first have to make sure that you know they're, they're okay and they feel comfortable, but then you also have a duty to tell a manager. This training helps equip people with the tools to be able to respond based on where you sit and what your role is 
in a news organization mm -hmm. and the obligations that we have to each other to make sure that we have safe and fair work environments. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think there's a lot of different ways to come at this. I think training is one tool in the toolkit. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I, I go back to Bob Sutton's conversation, Carolyn, uh, from our earlier podcast. And I, I, I'm not playing devil's advocate, but he had a really interesting point of view that I'd love to get you guys' take on, um, which I thought was true. I think, um, you know, he said, he's not anti-training. He's not anti-training, but he says that training has to go along with the leadership um, and the, 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 the tone set by the leadership that if it is like Gloria and I were talking about, you know, oh, you've got to get down there and do it. You go sit in front of a computer and you push a button and you get back to your desk. Nobody was really instilling in us and, and talking to us and saying, this is something you need to take seriously. We're going to talk about it. We're going to, you know, test you on it. Who knows what? But I mean, I think there was a, a, a little bit of a lack. It was a bit of a t ticking the box exercise. Um, and I, I know part of our training, um, our motto, so to speak, is ju don't just tick the box. Um, but his, Bob Sutton's point is, um, you know, do you really need a chief people officer in your organization? Isn't that the job of the CEO or isn't that the job of the head of the organization? Why do you really need somebody else to do that? Isn't that, the, you know, coming from the top, as he says? And if you have that culture set from the top with ethical leadership and with um, instilling this this notion of equality and, um, you know, anti-harassment and all of this, you know, you, training should be there for sure, but you need both, is his point. I think that's right. I think you look at some major news organizations, and we know we're in the industry. We hear about the editor at this paper or the executive producer at that network being incredible people. You know, they're good guys or they're great women. Look at CBS and what it's done in the wake of all it's experienced in the past two years. I think that what training can do is give employees or managers the legal education they need to then act morally. I think it's incredibly hard to act morally when you don't know or are not aware of your legal right or legal duty. Caroline mentioned bystanders. Actually, it's a bystander's legal duty to report what they are told. And I think we're still in an era in which that gives us some motivation. It gives us some reasoning. It, it basically opens up the door to then act morally because they go hand in hand. But you need to know, this is what I was told. I know it's illegal, and therefore I'm telling you. You raise an excellent point too, Diana, because these are leadership and, and management issues. The second module kind of breaks that down for for those who participate, what their responsibilities are as leaders and managers. And we've said, um, and it's manifested in the research, that culture is set by leadership, so who you choose to put into positions of leadership. And so if you promote and hire the talented jerk who sexually harasses their colleagues, that sets the tone. And if you promote somebody who's great at enabling the work of others, that also sets the culture. Mm -hmm. And with communication, it's what you say and what you don't say. So. If nothing happens on your watch during Me Too and you don't use this as an opportunity to say, hey, I'm sure some of you have seen these news reports. I just want to let you know that this is important to us. This is where you can go if you have ever faced some sort of incident. And here are our policies. Here's your HR contact. Here's who you need to come in contact with. We really care. Um, that's 
addressed in in the second module, which isn't which sounds pretty basic, but a lot of journalists never get leadership and management training, and it's not taught in journalism schools. And many talented people rise to the ranks without ever going through kind of what's the role of a leader, what's the role of a manager, how do you actually set culture, and what are some things that you can deploy so that people feel safe coming forward. Yeah. We knew that training wasn't going to be the silver bullet, um, but it was a it was a, a crucial part of solutions post Me Too, and we wanted to take it on. Absolutely. I, I have a, a story that um, is a positive story um, that I want to share with both of you. Um, that Madalika, I know, um, was here a few weeks ago. Madalika Sika, she's on our leadership and um, diversity committee, and she and I worked in a newsroom together um, with some really great leaders. Uh, uh, our executive producer and our, our anchor were um, very receptive um, to listening to their staff and taking on board criticism and feedback in a way that I, I think is rare. I, I now know is rare. I didn't realize it at the time. Um, but we had uh, um, an incident where herself and myself and one other woman on the staff, we were probably in our mid to late 30s, I guess, at the time. Um, so we were sort of seen as... Um, you know, mid-level to, to high-level women on the staff, and people looked up to us. A lot of the lower-level, uh, um, entry-level, um, younger staffers looked up to us, young, young women and young men. And we had uh, quite a group of young women come to us and talk to us about the uh, culture in the newsroom. Um, that was not appropriate. Um, it wasn't, you know, harassment, but it was inappropriate language, inappropriate, sometimes inappropriate behavior, it made them a little uncomfortable. And, and, and basically what, what the three of us realized is that we were a gap between this older generation of men and a younger generation of young men and women who just did not understand this kind of behavior. And it was incumbent upon us to go and speak to the anchor and the executive producer about this and say, this is making the younger women in particular uncomfortable. And they listened. And what they did was take the whole staff on a weekend retreat. And we all went off for a weekend. It was mandatory. Um, we had speakers. We had conversations. We had breakdown sessions all about um, working in the newsroom, about gender equality, about uh, harassment, um, discrimination, all sorts of things. And it was a really eye-opening experience. You know, whether people came back uh, a better person or not is obviously an individual thing, but I think at the very least, it allowed us to be much more aware of these issues and more sensitive to them. And some of the things that I had tolerated in the newsroom that I thought, oh, that's just them. They're just being boys, being boys, guys, being guys. The younger generation did not tolerate. And, and thank goodness that they called us out on it and we called them out on it. And it, and it was a case of educating all of us from the, from the bottom all the way up. Um, and I just would love to hear your thoughts on that. I mean, I think that resonates deeply with me because what I see when we talk to women is that they are noticing the behavior. In some cases, they're calling out the behavior, but in many cases, they're not. And that's what solidified for us the belief that we needed to focus on the education. I think it's incredible that Nightline did what it did at that time because essentially your leadership decided to talk about it, to communicate about it. And that in and of itself is, as I alluded to earlier in my own experience, when I was able to communicate what I had experienced, that's an empowering feeling. Mm -hmm. um, at a time when I was feeling like I had absolutely no power, right? 
because this is, as we've said, all about power. So I think that's amazing. I think that's also kind of at the heart of what we hope many organizations will do. One thing I should mention is that um, we want this to be available to the highest earning network and the small local paper in the middle of the country that no one can even name unless you're in that town. Um, that's a goal as well. Yeah, at the heart, uh, at the heart of the training, as Gloria said, it's about power, and we we've seen it during the pilots have effects on those who take it, who maybe are lower ranking or are less established in their career, realize that they have more power than they realize. We kind of think of power as this formal authority. You have um, a title or a position, and the rest of us have to do whatever that person says, but you begin to realize that power is defined as the ability to affect others. And there are many ways we can affect others. We have this brilliant phrase that our, our chief of staff, Ellie Slater, um, put together, which was that knowledge is your power. And I think everybody walks away from this training knowing that they have power to do something in their careers. That doesn't matter if you're the most talented star at the network or you're an intern, Everybody has equal rights. The training is allowing us to stop and think how we use our power and, and, and make sure that we're using it correctly. We had the chance to read some of the research from UC Berkeley professor, Dr. Keltner, who wrote The Power Paradox and has studied why, why and how people abuse their power and what can be done about it. And one of the techniques that you can use, because it shows, you know, science shows as you gain power, you lose empathy in order to contain that. One of the things that you can do is to make sure that if you have influence over others, if you do have power, you give it to those who have less power. And that is at the heart of journalism. Journalists are there to be a voice to the voiceless. And so even just by living up to the ethics of the profession, we're preventing our own abuses of power. I absolutely, I don't even need to say, I, I hope that this, will, this training will be effective. I know it will be effective. And I, I hope that people listening today will sign up for the training and and put it to good use and and we'll see the the benefits of it further down the line so thank you both for for coming today and telling us a little bit about what what it is we've been working so hard on for the past two years is there any anything i've left out um yeah i just wanted to mention something i'm going back to um when people know that they need this training already in our piloting we have companies and organizations coming to us because they've experienced an extreme situation so they have come to either Pointer, our incredible partner, or us to say, we need help. And, and that's really what they feel. They say, we need help. This happened. And they notice their newsroom disrupted. So they're sort of at the end of their rope asking for help and asking for guidance. That's one thing. When you know you have a problem, you know you have a problem. Carolyn? It's been an amazing journey. I mean, you know, we took really painful experiences and turn it into a solution. Um, what's unique about this training is that it was informed by people who directly experienced the behavior with the experts on harassment and abuse of power and culture and civility, respect and leadership. And then Pointer did its magic and turned it into training. And so it's, it's truly a unique program that I think will be part of solutions. A lot of um, you know folks might say, oh, it's, I don't want to invest in it, training's expensive. Gloria kind of pointed out the business side of it, but also a lot of research shows if you don't pay for it, or if you don't invest in it, then your staff won't take it as seriously. 
So this is, is this is an investment in your culture and the viability of your company. And um, you know everybody deserves dignity and fairness at work. And this type of information and training is an investment that you, that you need to make in your employees that I wish I had when I was starting out in my career. It's arguably much less ex expensive and, and much more cost effective than having to pay out millions and millions of dollars in, um, in settlement agreements uh, and NDAs and, and, and all the, uh, the arbitration that goes on behind the scenes when, when somebody does come forward with a, with a very strong case. I mean, it's, so, it's, it's incredibly cost effective, right, to get out ahead of this. And I, I think the bigger challenge will be that we're in an industry in which people regularly work 10, 20, 30, 40 years. So we have a lot of people at a lot of different points in his or her career to educate. Uh, but it's not impossible. I mean, I look at us and I'm amazed. We came together, developed this training. Caroline and I were just saying, I can't believe we are where we are. Developed strategic, communicative, incredibly informed training that we will now be delivering to the Wall Street Journal, to a number of major news organizations. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's an oh my gosh moment um, that I'm really excited to be a part of. It's a huge accomplishment. Um, you know, training has been ineffective and broken for a long time. And this is something that we wanted to tackle because we're crazy problem solvers and passionate about making sure that what we went through, other journalists don't have to, because at the end of the day, this is about good journalism. Mm -hmm. And you know, since 2010, employers have paid a total of $700 million to employees claiming discrimination and harassment. And settlements can cost hundreds of thousands to millions in legal and settlements fee. So journalists, like the industry's already being disrupted. They can't afford not to tackle this. Mm -hmm. uh, one lawsuit could, could blow a small company out of the water or a startup out of the water. And this is just a critical part of effective change. Well, and, and by doing this, we allow journalists to get back to what they're good at, which is reporting and, and being good journalists and being a voice to the voiceless and, you know, bringing the public a service that is, you know, very, very badly needed. So hopefully this is a step in the right direction. And our goal is to make this program effective, affordable and scalable. And it's going to be a multi-year journey. We're going to continue to monitor and measure its effectiveness. Once we really get the content down, we're gonna explore other, other ways to expand it. Right now, we know that the most effective way to train is in person. So that's the design of the program, but we're not gonna give up. We're gonna make sure that this is effective. And we're also gonna be open and share the lessons learned for other industries. Thank you both so much. Our pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to our podcast. I'm Diana Pierce Burgess, the Executive Director of Press Forward. Visit us online at www.thepressforward.org. Join the conversation on social media. You can find us at Press Forward Now on Facebook and at The Press Forward on Twitter and Instagram. Be sure to catch our podcasts on iTunes and Spotify. We'll see you next week.